According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Jeremiah this morning. Unless you are superstitious, you may join us at chapter 13. If you are superstitious, I don't know what to tell you, because we're in chapter 13 this morning. I'll pray for you, and you can join us there. It's a fun chapter. It's got some show and tell. It's got some visual aids. It's got some lessons to be learned. This is uh, preaching on dirty underwear and uh, makes for a great uh, Father's Day message. I'm not sure why. Thus the Lord said to me, go and buy yourself a linen, New American Standard says waistband. Uh, New King James, King James, some other ones might say belt, you might have girdle, you might have uh, loincloth, all of these are valid translations, Uh, something that's wrapped around your waist. So waistband is technically correct. Uh, The Holman Christian Standard Bible, anybody have that this morning? There you go, underwear, all right, underwear. So go buy yourself linen underwear. Put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. This is underwear you're not going to wash. Okay, so I bought the waistband, girdle, belt, loincloth. It's the same thing, by the way, Adam and Eve manufactured out of of, uh, fig leaves. All right. I bought the waistband in accordance with the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. We don't know how many days went by saying, take the waistband that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a crevice of the rock. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates, as the Lord had commanded me. So now what's he wearing? Okay. I don't know if this is on video or not, or we're going to see the deleted scenes on DVD when we get to heaven. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the waistband, which I had commanded you to hide there. And then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the waistband from the place where I had hidden it, and lo, the waistband was ruined. It was totally worthless. And that's the point. All right? So uh, they didn't have PowerPoint back in the day. This was the visual aid. This was the show and tell. And there is a message that goes with this activity. The word of the Lord came to me saying in verse 8, thus says the Lord. All right, we're going to start here. I didn't pray yet, did I? Let me say a word of prayer and we'll sanctify our thinking and uh, begin to study the, the dirty underwear. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth, thankful for the blessings we have to assemble together. And Father, day by day, week by week, you are so faithful. Moment by moment, Father, great is thy faithfulness. I thank you for the book of Jeremiah. I thank you for the prophet Jeremiah and what he experienced and how he stayed faithful in every command you ever gave him. Father, uh, I ask for your blessing upon our time of study today, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would consider the impact of this message and how it pertains to our daily life, what it is that we fail to do in, uh, in our uh, diminished obedience. Really, it's our disobedience that we call limited obedience. Uh, 
Father, uh, open our eyes to these applications, and I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here in chapter 13, we start with a show-and-tell. The Lord directs Jeremiah to a show-and-tell illustration of Judah's coming exile. It's a show-and-tell illustration. He gets to show everybody his underwear, and then he buries it, and then he brings it back, and everyone gets a chance to see what happens when the underwear is stripped off and cast into the Euphrates the way that it is. You would think, hey, wouldn't a river wash it? Well... Uh, there's a lot of doctrine in this chapter, and it is uh, remarkable what uh, the principles come across. Uh, what you think might be the case is not always the case. And what you think might think, make things better might actually just make things worse, uh, such as Adam and Eve learned when they thought that fig leaves could solve their nakedness issue and, and things of that nature. So we have a show-and-tell illustration. It's the first 11 verses. I haven't read the explanation of it yet, but we'll get to that shortly in verses uh, 8 through 11. Um, This is not uh, unique to Jeremiah. In fact, Isaiah did several of these. Uh, Ezekiel did a number of these. Ezekiel probably was the the champion of all the prophetic pantomime performers, would have been uh, Ezekiel. Pantomime prophetic performances can also be found in Isaiah and Ezekiel. You might recall in Isaiah chapter 20, Isaiah walked around naked for three years. All right, and uh, that's a facet of ministry I've never been called upon to do and don't expect to. Um, but it's, it's remarkable because there are people who don't like the idea, and so they've, they've redefined naked in, in different ways. And... Um, it's interesting. All right. Isaiah 20, in the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, he fought against Ashdod and captured it. At the same time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so going naked and barefoot. Now, there are some scholars that will point out that if you're wearing a loincloth, you could still be considered naked. And that they, uh, when David was dancing before the ark and when, when Peter was stripped for work, uh, the terms like naked mean almost naked. That they mean, well, you know, you might as well be naked because you're stripped for work and whatever. You wouldn't go outdoors looking like that. Um, anyway, I think those are just some people that just don't like the idea of, of people being naked for three years and, and serving um, the purpose of the Lord in that in that process. In this case, though, I think the Hebrew idiom of naked and barefoot is is pretty comprehensive. That's telling you, uh, yeah, he's he's naked, naked, not just loincloth naked. But interesting, if you if you are of the sensitive sort that wants to think that Isaiah was walking around in his in his underwear for three years, then um, our chapter today goes the step beyond that, because it's the loincloth that he's taking off. All right, it's the loincloth that he leaves in the, in the river for, for the, the period of time. Anyway, uh, so there's a message there in Isaiah 20, as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and as a token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exile of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And so there it is again. I think to me it's undeniable. All right, Ezekiel chapter 4, other examples. Won't spend a ton of time on this, but we taught Ezekiel back in the day. Actually, this is one of the older studies. Ezekiel is not on the website, minding its own MP3 business. This was taught in the years before MP3. Ezekiel chapter 4, 
uh, son of man, get yourself a brick, place it before you and inscribe a city on it, Jerusalem, then lay siege against it, build a siege wall, raise up a ramp, pitch camps and place battering rams against it all around. So it's like he's building a little uh, plaything, a little display fort, if you will, sandcastle maybe. Then get yourself an iron plate, set it up as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it so that it is under siege and besiege it. In other words, lay down there right next to the city, but you got that iron skillet in front of your face so you can't see the city as it's under siege. And as for you, lie down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. You shall bear their iniquity for the number of days that you lie on it. He has to lay there on his left side 390 days. Then he gets to roll over and lay on his right side 40 days. Anyway, so there's that. Uh, later on in the chapter, he has to eat bread that's cooked over human dung. Uh, later on, he uh, has to do some other things. In chapter 5, he has to shave his head and then divide all his hair and beard into three piles and uh, burn a third of them. Anyway, that's Ezekiel for you, all right? And if you're not familiar with Ezekiel, um, you know, give it, give it a read sometime, and, and uh, there's some neat things that happen there. But these pantomime performances, all right? Little skits, little... Uh, prophetic performances were designed to make a point to do something that is so absolutely unforgettable. If you were there that day and you saw it happen, you'll never forget it. All right, And then you connect it with the message that comes with it, the thus saith the Lord message that comes with it. So when you watch Jeremiah strip off his fruit of the looms and go chuck them in the river, all right, you're not going to forget that. That's, that's memorable. right? That's, that's an event in the history of a church that gets talked about. For, for years. I personally don't think it's even the Euphrates in this picture, but we can debate that. There's a manuscript question, and uh, uh, I'm not going to part fellowship over it. Um, the locality is likely not likely the Euphrates, and I don't object to it because of the distance. It'd be about a 700-mile walk uh, there and back, and twice, uh, which is doable. Uh, there's nothing in this chapter that tells us how long it took him to do this, Right? Uh, he could have walked to the Euphrates and walked back, and it's a 700-mile round trip, and it would have taken him weeks to do so. Um, it, it, I believe it's more likely to be Parah. There's a town, I didn't put the verses down, it's mentioned in the book of Joshua. It is three miles northeast of Anathoth. It's northeast of Jeremiah's own hometown. It's in that same neighborhood with Jerusalem, Anathoth, and Parah. It means heifer town. And uh, there is a wadi there, and interestingly enough, the archaeologists that have found it, it's called Ein Farah, and Ein Farah, by the way, gets filtered through Arabic, but it's the same letters, it's just an F instead of a P. Uh, Ein Farah uh, does feature numerous crevices and rocks, It actually, geographically, the, the territory of that wadi, of that, of that river stream, uh, which is sometimes dry, sometimes water-filled, uh, matches what we might expect here if, if you were going to stick your underwear in uh, in a crevice of the rock, all right? Whereas the Euphrates is a monster river, and if you buried your underwear in the Euphrates, how would you ever find it again? Especially if you walked back to Jerusalem in the meantime. Anyway, that's my theory, and uh, I may be wrong, but um, that's, uh, to me, more likely. In either event, it's really irrelevant. I think it's probably more likely because he is doing all of this under observation of Jerusalem that's, that's not listening to him preaching and Anathoth that's trying to kill him. All right, Anathoth is where his brothers are that have the conspiracy against him. And so uh, we have the, uh, the episode here.
Either way, it doesn't change the message and doesn't change the application for you and I today. The illustration teaches that so long as Judah clings to the Lord, their closeness will be greater than any Gentile nation's glory. All right? Their closeness. The point is closeness. And uh, they use underwear to teach closeness, right? Or loincloth, okay? I guess it's loincloth if you're an old King James person, or it's underwear if you're the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Anyway, it's the closest piece of clothing to that part of your body. And the point is closeness. And the closeness that's lost because of idolatry. So verse 9 of Jeremiah 13, Thus says the Lord, Just so will I destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts, they have gone after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. Let them be just like this underwear, this waistband, which is totally worthless. For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord. He says, this is the metaphor. I am the Lord and you are my underwear, right? This is, this is the, the, the metaphor saying underwear is designed to cling to your waist. And that's how close God expected Judah to be. He expected the Jewish people were going to be close to him. Again, verse 11, as the waistband, as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel, the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown. This was going to be a mark of fame. What are they known for? Right? What are they known for? What are Irish people known for? What are Italians known for? What are Polacks known for? What are, you know, whatever. You know, we used to tell jokes like that. Now you can't anymore because it's racist at some point. But, you know, people are known for something. And, uh, and if you're friendly enough, you can talk about it. Right? What are people known for? Well, Israel should be known for their closeness to the Lord. That should be a mark of renown. Man, that's Yahweh's underwear. You know, how special is that? That's, that's Yahweh's underwear. Are you kidding me? Man. So it, it would be a mark of superiority to the Gentile nations. Uh, again, that's verse 11. Uh, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, for glory, but they did not listen. See, here's the thing, and we get this in the New Testament as well. The items that are designed to be more glorious are sometimes thought of as being less glorious. The parts of the body that we deem less honorable, and in the body of Christ, those spiritual gifts are actually more necessary. And the things that we seem to be less honorable, in fact, there's some parts of the body we don't usually speak about in common public conversations because we find that it's a dishonorable uh, anatomical conversation to be having. And yet, if your body was missing such a body part, you'd be in a world of hurt, okay? Um, the, so the Apostle Paul says with respect to the spiritual gifts, those items which we deem less honorable in this case have more honor attached to them, right? We studied that under spiritual gifts. And so with clothing, don't think it's insulting whatsoever to be Yahweh's underwear. It's actually the closest. It's better than his external clothing. It's better than his accessories. It's better than uh, something, you know, in his pocket he might drop. No, the underwear is the closest to him. 
in uh, the layers of clothing that, that Yahweh might adorn himself with. And that's the principle there. By the way, if you want more verses on this, I would recommend to you um, some passages. For example, Genesis 2.24, the very same verb here that talks about clinging, uh, wrapping around your waist and, and whatnot, that's the, that's the King James for cleaving. That's, the, that's a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to one another and the two shall become one flesh. So this is the same Hebrew verb that speaks of marital clinging in the, uh, in the marriage relationship. That's the clinging of the, of the underwear around the loins, the, 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 the cloth around the loin, we might say. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, verses 7 and 8 spell out the, uh, the closeness as well, that there is no nation, certainly not the United States of America, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is Yahweh, our God, whenever we call on him? You know, the Romans had Jupiter and the Greeks had Zeus and uh, the, the uh, Germans had Odin. Israel had Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord, our God, whenever we call on him? He's always within earshot because you're, that's how near you are. You know, is there ever a time that your underwear can't hear what you're saying? Is there ever a time, all right, that that the Lord is not near to Israel? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? None of the Gentile nations were given Torah like the Jews were given Torah. Although judgment is coming, this future destiny of joy and glory, it will be happening. And we've got a preview here. In chapter 13, he says, you're a ruined waistband. You are a ruined waistband. That's where the story ends. The story in this chapter ends, the underwear is wrecked. All right? It is absolutely wrecked. And if it's absolutely wrecked, can it ever be made new ever again? Well, not in human terms, but God is the one who makes all things new. And so in Jeremiah 33... If you want a preview of coming attractions, this will be about 20 weeks from now. Jeremiah 33. And I won't read all nine verses, but um, verses 1 through 9, there is a restoration on the way, and these things are going to be made new. And uh, there will be health and healing and, and an abundance of peace. And verse 7, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. And you'll notice the verse 9. It will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth. See, Yahweh turns it around. Before he said, you guys are pretty special because Yahweh is your God. Now he turns it around the millennium and Yahweh says, I'm pretty special because Israel is my people. Can you imagine? (laughs) And so it will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth. Yahweh will look upon all the Gentile nations and say, man, Israel, that one's mine. He'll be proud of that one. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. So, anyway, there is good news at the end of the story, even if we don't uh, learn about it in chapter 13. 
And by the way, if it actually is the Euphrates River, does it change the message? It, change, it, it matters not, all right? And I think I, the third option besides Euphrates and Para would be Ephrathah, would be uh, the, the land of Ephrathah just to the north. But um, I think Para is probably the most likely uh, interpretation of, of that term in any event. Popular Proverbs. Following the show-and-tell illustration, Jeremiah uses a popular proverb to preach on. Jeremiah uses a popular proverb to preach on. It's not a Bible proverb either. It's just an expression, right? There's an expression going around in his day and age. It's popular, and it's probably on you know, Fox News or something. It's probably uh, something that he hears on the streets. And it'd be like somebody today hears an expression that kind of becomes proverbial. And so a pastor decides, okay, I'm going to preach on that. Right, I'll create a whole preaching series on uh, lefty loosey, righty tighty, or, or just something that's just earthly, something that's just um, uh, from Poor Richard's Almanac or whatever. And in this case, uh, every jug is to be filled with wine. That's the proverb. All right, and it seems like a good proverb. I mean, who doesn't want wine, you know? And uh, why are there wine jugs? Wine jugs exist to hold wine. You know, that's why it's there. So, you know, if you have a wine jug, it, it ought to be filled with wine. And uh, he's going to preach on this. And it becomes a, uh, it's, it's very pointed, but he uses it to make a different point. And uh, interesting the way this happens. All right, so let's look at verses 12 through 14. Therefore, you are to speak this word to them. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jug is to be filled with wine. And when they say to you, duh, all right, when they, I mean, that's in the Hebrew, okay? When they, when they say to you, do we not know very well that every jug is to be filled with wine? Yeah, we know that. We made that up. Then say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I am about to fill all the inhabitants of this land, the kings that sit for David on his throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. In other words, you guys are the wine jugs and you're going to get filled up and it won't be a happy ending because I will dash them against each other. Both the fathers and the sons together declares the Lord, I will not show pity nor be sorry nor have compassion so as not to destroy them. All right, so here's the message. Uh, Okay, every wine jug should be filled with wine. Great, fill them all up. And then smash them all together. All right, smash them all together. The more they're full, the better they smash. <laughs> okay, just swing them and smash them. And, uh, and smash a father against a son. Why not? That's a good Father's Day message. The fathers and the sons together, I will smash them against each other. Both the fathers and the sons together, declares the Lord. And so he takes a pointed proverb and he preaches on it. All right, and this is fairly common, by the way. Old Testament, New Testament, uh, in, uh, in different ways. It, uh, it can be used as a polemic. It can be used as an argument against something that's going on. So we have pointed proverbial polemics. I'm collecting royalties in all these terms, by the way. So if you, if you read an expression like this in a book somewhere, let me know. I've got a lawsuit on my hands. Pointed proverbial polemics. 
And it's almost like Yahweh himself could be somewhat offended at some of these stupid proverbs humanity came up with. I mean, uh, Yahweh writes a lot of proverbs and through tools like Solomon and whatnot. And then people come up with these things. And I, I think Yahweh just says, really? That's a proverb now? Anyway, Isaiah speaks of several of them. Uh, Ezekiel speaks of several of them. Jesus speaks of some. Paul uses some. Paul will quote a pagan poet uh, about all Cretans are liars. Paul will uh, quote some other secular authors in different places. In Isaiah, I think we have proverbial uh, expressions that uh, are mentioned in chapter 8 and in chapter 9. I don't know. I probably didn't make much of a big deal out of it when we were working our way through Isaiah. But the um, you, uh, thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not, uh, not to walk in the way of this people, saying, "You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. You are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it." And so uh, they had just like probably every generation like us today, you've got a certain segment of your population that's just really all wrapped around the gears related to these conspiracies everywhere, right? And everything they look at is a conspiracy. Everything they look at, the, the, the first explanation that crosses their mind is some kind of this conspiracy. And it's, it's amazing the things that people will, will believe or follow after or swallow. And... Uh, and in most cases, of course, the simpler answer is, no, it's not a conspiracy. It's just stupid people doing stupid things. So you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people calls a conspiracy. In chapter 9 and verse 10, also of Isaiah, I think there's another one here. Um, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. And so you have proverbs, you have expressions, you have... Uh, uh, sayings that come up as a way to uh, communicate your insistence on something. Like, oh yeah, you knocked our towers down? Well, we'll build a taller freedom tower or whatever. You know, we just create an expression. It says, okay, great. Bricks have fallen down? We'll rebuild with smooth stones. Cut down our sycamores? Great. We'll replace them with cedar. And, uh, well, this gets preached against as well with a pointed message there in chapter 9. Ezekiel, chapter 11 and chapter 18. In chapter 11, uh, verse 2, He said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give evil advice in the city, who say, and here's their proverb, the time is not near to build houses. The city is the pot and we are the meat, or we are the flesh. The city is the pot, and we are the flesh. And that was their proverb. That's what they came up with. The, the people that are surrounded by Nebuchadnezzar's armies are convinced that God's smiling on them, and that Daniel and Ezekiel and all those losers that got taken off into captivity, that they are the ones God has cursed. But the ones that are still behind in Jerusalem, they're safe, they're happy, they're great. Uh, you know, Jerusalem's the pot and we're the fish or the flesh, you know. And so the Lord's going to preach on that and say, yeah, you're a, you're a pot of fish, all right, or you're a pot of flesh, all right, and it's about to boil. I'm cooking you guys. The real remnant were the guys I rescued and took to Babylon. 
It's, it's Daniel and Ezekiel and all those guys. You're cursing them, but they are the remnant I rescued years ago. You guys are cooked, <laughs> okay? And uh, he turns their uh, proverb upside down. And then maybe my favorite one with sour grapes. Ezekiel chapter 18. This would have fit well in uh, modern psychology. You can lay on a couch and the shrink will tell you it's your parents' fault. Um, and this is, this is the proverb here. Uh, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. <laughs> okay. So uh, he wasn't pleased with that as a proverb. As I live, declares the Lord God. That's pretty serious. The God who cannot die stakes his life on this. He says, as I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. He brings that expression to an end. He says, I don't want to hear that anymore. So uh, I think this is what we see here in Jeremiah 13, a bit of a proverbial expression that Yahweh is keying on that uh, through Jeremiah then he's going to preach against it. This every jug is to be filled with wine. That's why you have a jug of wine there. Um, Well, okay. He says, all right, here's the lesson. You're going to be filled, all right. You're going to be filled and you're going to be smashed. You're going to be filled and you're going to be smashed. This prophecy, by the way, of, of, of predicting everybody's drunkenness, is kind of a specialty for Jeremiah. He, um, this prophecy is in keeping with later ministry. And about 12 weeks from now, we're going to really have a good time in Jeremiah 25. All right? It's a, it's a tough chapter. People don't want to take it literally, so they try to say, well, it was a vision or it was a dream and whatever. Uh, but I take it literally. I think this was his role. I think, I think Jeremiah had a world tour. I believe that, that the Lord sent him to Gentile kings all around. Because his, his first commission in chapter 1 was to kings, to nations. Jeremiah is a prophet to the nations. And as a foreshadowing, of course, Jeremiah is preaching messages that have ultimately fulfillment in the coming tribulation of Israel. And ministry that will be global in, during the tribulation with Antichrist on the scene has a preview in the, in the 6th century B.C. with Jeremiah being sent to the nations. And so, uh, I don't want to give it away, but we'll get a little preview here this morning in Jeremiah 25, and we're going to see some things, we're going to see some golden cups, we're going to see some drinking and some drunkenness, we're going to have reference here to the fall of Babylon, and there's going to be lessons in Jeremiah 25 that may not make sense until we get to Revelation, because there's a golden cup in the hand of, of mystery Babylon in Revelation. And uh, there's activity there. In Jeremiah 25 is the promise uh, that the captivity will only last 70 years and then he will bring them back and then he will punish Babylon. And this, by the way, is the chapter that greatly encouraged Daniel when he knew that his captivity was only going to be a 70-year captivity. And um, then we get to verse 14. Many nations and great kings will make slaves of them, even them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. See, the scope of this message is far beyond one nation and one captivity. It's many nations, many captivities. It's, it's the whole course of Gentile dominion over Jerusalem. 
uh, from the entire span of the vacated Davidic throne. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, this, uh, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Now, was this all in a vision? Was this all in a dream? Was this in a spiritual dimension? Or did he literally travel from place to place to place and make the kings of those nations drink from this cup? Starting with Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and its kings and its princes to make them a ruin, a horror, a hissing, and a curse as it is to this day. Then Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all the people, and all the foreign people, all the kings of the land of Uz, the kings of the land of the Philistines, Mentions those cities, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod. And it goes on. All right, more kings. So, stay tuned for that. Verse 27, uh, You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more, because of the sword with uh, which I will send among you. Okay? There's a fun message. So we'll have some fun with that. And it will be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink that you will say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall surely drink. There's no option. They will be forced to drink. And it's, it's conceivable. You can, you can pour liquid down the throat of an unwilling participant. All right. Anyway, I suspect Jeremiah's ministry was far more vivid than oftentimes we just think, well, he was the weeping prophet. And uh, I think that... Uh, he had his moments, all right, in uh, different ways. Hmm. The point being here of this section, Judah will get smashed, then they will get smashed. All right, and Judah will get smashed, and then they will get smashed. The, the jugs just get smashed together and everything's all wrecked. Just like the underwear, all right, if you smash two wine jugs together, are they good for anything else after that? All right. In human terms, there's not a human on the planet that can smash two wine jugs together and then restore them. That is, that is impossible. And yet, remarkably enough, God does the impossible when he restores the nation of Israel. Interesting applications there. You know, I ask... Uh, what is the, the status, the uh, inebriation level of the United States of America? If we were to make the United States of America breathe into a tube and uh, score a BAC level of some sort, um, what is our present drunkenness? How, how involved is our nation, is our culture in promiscuity, bloodshed, idolatry? You know, think about these things that defile a land. And think about how intoxicated we are with the wine of idolatry, with the wine of fornication, with the wine of uh, all these things, violence, the wine of violence. And what we saw last week, I didn't stress this so much. If you were here last week, you, did, you remember the, the, the trees and the animals and the birds? And we, we I mean, that chapter is an environmental chapter. If you want to bless the environment, it's a sin issue. If you want to curse the environment, it's a sin issue. The defilement of the birds and the trees was because of the rampant fornication. It was because of the rampant sin. 
And so the provision there being that to, to remedy that, to, uh, to bless creation, think about Adam and Eve and their sin and the effects then upon the animals or Noah's day, the flood. Think about the consequences. Read Romans 8 and see how the creation groans waiting for the revelation of the sons of men waiting for the redemption of humanity. When, when humanity is redeemed, creation will be blessed. See? And so I didn't stress it so much last week, but that that's, was really a big point to be made, was the environmental impact of sin and the environmental impact of righteousness. And the best thing we can do if we're going to be Christian uh, uh, environmentalists, and that's to make all kinds of environmentalists mad, but walk according to the will of God, according to the Word of God. Fulfill your mandates according to Scriptures. And that's appropriate environmental stewardship. In any event, that was a week ago. Extra credit, no extra charge for that. Um, but here, what is our drunkenness like? And at what point have we reached the point of drunkenness? Are we there? Are we at the falling down point yet? Are we at the vomiting point yet? Or at the not getting up point yet. You know, at a certain point, we, we've, we've done falling down, we've done vomited, and now we're just laying there not getting back up again. And you're looking at this, this drunk, passed out thing thinking, he might not ever get up again. Is that where our nation is? Say, and that's how blunt uh, Jeremiah gets in, uh, in these chapters. All right. Now... How are we doing? We get to get the final part of the chapter here, 15 through 27. It's the longest part of the chapter. 15 through 27. And uh, Jeremiah is going to preach to the king and the queen mother. Um, She's brought into this in verse 18, the king and the queen mother. So um, we've got to understand what the history is here. Starting in verse 15, listen and give heed, do not be haughty, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you are hoping for light, he makes it into deep darkness and turns it into gloom. This give the glory to the Lord your God is the the final opportunity they have for confession. It's an invitation to confession. And rather than just hoping things get better, uh, they're not going to get better. If you don't confess, then uh, what you feared is, is barely scratching the surface because darkness is coming, a deep darkness and gloom is coming uh, should you not repent. Chapter 13 closes with a specific rebuke against the king and the king mother. So what comes first? It's a chicken and egg thing. Is, you know, is it, you know, do you have a wicked king and then as a consequence then the population goes, uh, goes south? Or do you have a wicked population and as a consequence then uh, God judges you with the king you deserve in uh, certain ways? Okay? Or is it both simultaneously? Um, because this rebuke, I think, reflects the, the carnality of the people, but this specific address is to the king and to his mother the king and the queen mother and uh, the influence that the queen mother has in these uh, circumstances, the wife of the previous king, all right? Um, and the uh, the influence that happens. And it, it almost becomes traditional, 
I think the stage was set because of Bathsheba and the influence that Bathsheba had in Solomon and the fact that she was instrumental in the succession there because uh, Solomon was on the verge of not getting the throne and, and until Nathan and Bathsheba and these guys stepped in. And then the role that Bathsheba had with a kind of a little side throne to the side of his as an older woman, a counselor, a woman of wisdom or what have you. But it happened repeatedly. Several of the kings had their mother. And, you know, if your mother's Jezebel, that's a problem, okay? If your mother's, uh, you know, Bathsheba, it may be a good thing if she has the wisdom that she has, okay? We're going to talk about Lemuel and his mother when we get to Proverbs 31 and if that's Solomon or not. But um, the point being, the queen mother can be a blessing. comes up, by the way, in the book of Daniel as well when the writing was on the wall and, and they had to go fetch the, the queen mother to come in and, and uh, tell the young whippersnapper about uh, Daniel who used to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court. So this is what we start with. This phrase, give glory to the Lord. Give glory to the Lord. Um, it's, it's idiomatic in many applications and it's, uh, it's almost comical in some applications because it gets adapted to different hymns. It gets adapted to different children's songs. And when it gets adapted, it's usually not adapted as a call to confession. And so if you're going to rise and shine and give God the glory, glory, uh, there's other give God the glory songs that children sing and so forth. I'm not teasing those songs or saying don't ever sing them again or, or whatever. But more often than not, this expression, give glory to God, is a way of saying you're carnal and got to get in fellowship, all right? You got to confess. You got to be restored to fellowship. God gets the glory when He forgives you. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And who gets the glory for that? God gets the glory for that. We get no glory for confessing, for being restored to fellowship. And so, just a couple of examples include John seven nineteen. I'm sorry, Joshua seven nineteen and John nine twenty four. And in some cases, it's insulting. I think with a man born blind, it was rather insulting. If you tell somebody to confess their sins and they're not carnal, um, that might make them carnal. <laughs> All right. How dare you tell me I'm out of fellowship? All right, well, maybe I'm wrong. Give glory to the Lord. Joshua 7.19. Joshua said to Achan, remember Achan? He stole the silver cup. He's the guilty party. Achan's the one that caused him to lose the battle here at Jericho when, when he stole the, the uh, or at Ai after Jericho, when he plundered the uh, little silver cup. And so um, he's invited here to give God the glory. Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. And I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. I coveted them and took them. Behold, they are concealed in the earth inside of my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent. Behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua to all the sons of Israel, they poured them out before the Lord. And of course, what happens next? 
See, just because you confess, just because you're restored to fellowship, doesn't mean that you got to get out of jail free card and everything's great after that. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. They brought them up to the valley of Achor. And uh, Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, burned them with fire after they stoned them with stones. They raised over them a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And uh, the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger Therefore, the name of the place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Anyway, give glory to the Lord is a confession opportunity. It is a confession imperative. The man born blind as well in John 9, 24. In this case, uh, they were trying to suborn perjury. They, uh, they wanted evidence against Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. And so um, when they invite him to give glory to God... Uh, it's partly his own confession for his own sake, but it w- really they want his testimony to convict Jesus in John nine twenty four, and 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 they kept trying, and it's just through this whole chapter, this man born blind was a real problem for him. They brought his parents in, they wanted his parents to to swear out under, you know, under oath. I know he wasn't born blind, you know. It's a scheme. It's a scam. Uh, he's a normal kid. He, he wasn't born blind. And the parents, they don't want to be on the record. They're saying, well, he's, he's of age. Ask him, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> In verse 20, let's see. Verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it of him that, they had, that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight, questioned them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? The parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So, so they knew. They said, "We're not going to say that. We're not going to go on the record like that." You know, they, they, they. You know, <laughs> that's called lawyering up, right? You know, I want to. I want a lawyer. That's, I've said all I'm going to say. Go ask him. He's of age. For this reason, his parents said he's of age. Ask him. So a second time, they called the man who'd been blind, and they said to him, "Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner." Just tell us how we can convict Jesus of these sins we can't nail him for. And so in this case, they want him to it's give glory to God on behalf of somebody else's sins. We want you to rat him out, confess his sins in, uh, in those things. And so the man answered, well, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. Okay, and there's a testimony. Nothing wrong with telling people there's something you don't know. Just say, hey, I don't know that. Here's one thing I do know. Okay. Just lay it out there. That's your witness. That's who you are. That's where you are. So give glory to the Lord. It's an invitation to confession. Darkness and gloom are the Lord's tools to prompt repentance. Darkness and gloom. You know, we want to avoid them. We want, we want to stop it now before it gets there. Well, it might have to get there. If that's what it takes to bring about repentance, then that's what it takes to bring about repentance. And there's a fuller message in Amos 5, I think, that addresses this. 
And there is, it's hard sometimes to pray for a loved one, for a family member, for a friend, for someone that you know is on the road headed towards discipline at some point. And you would love for them to repent, to get right with the Lord and not reach that darkness and gloom. But if it's the darkness and gloom that brings them out of it, if it's the darkness and gloom that not only rescues them, but rescues them for years to come, for the rest of their life, I'd rather have a lifelong repentance than some short-term thing. I'd rather have a lifelong repentance with an eternal glory for Jesus Christ than some kind of continued up and down, in and out, roller coaster train wreck. All right? And so thankfully, it's not up to us to figure this stuff out. God's got it all worked out. How long does the discipline have to go so that the repentance is enduring? And maybe, uh, I mean, we hate it. It looks to, looks to us like they're just miserable and we want it to stop. And God knows. He says, that's, uh, that's not miserable enough. Not yet. They have not yet been trained by it. See, discipline is designed to be training. It's after we've been trained by it, it produces that fruit of righteousness. Then, you know, that discipline seems not to be joyful. But after we've been trained by it, we can be so thankful. That's Hebrews 12, by the way. And the great message, perfect Father's Day application. You know, we have fathers who discipline us as seems best to them. Okay, I get one side trip per day. This is my side trip. Hebrews chapter 12. Here's what I'm talking about. Hebrews 12. And we have fathers to discipline us. So um, don't forget the exhortation. Verse 5. Hebrews 12.5, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. There's a value to it. Don't, don't despise it. Uh, it is for discipline, verse 7, that you endure. The fact that he's disciplining you means he loves you. Verse 6, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's rhetorical, but you can answer it. It's the son that the father doesn't love, the son that the father doesn't acknowledge. The bastard, the the father says, that's not my son. I don't claim that son. But a legitimate son who he does claim, who he loves, he will discipline that son. If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You're just a bastard. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? The contrast between the earthly and the heavenly. For they, your earthly dad, disciplined us for a short time. And my favorite phrase, as seemed best to them. (laughs) You know, was it perfect? Did, Did he make mistakes? Seemed best. Maybe it was too much. Maybe it was too little. Whatever. All right. But as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so we may share his holiness. So even if the earthly father blew it, too much, too little, wrong target, whatever, as unto the Lord, God's still in charge. The Lord knows what he's doing. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it. Trained by what? The sorrow. Sorrow is training. 
Those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God knows, and God knows, if the darkness and gloom need to get darker and gloomier, whatever it takes so that the sorrow will effectively train as it's designed to do. And so we've got Jeremiah 13 then, the darkness and the gloom. Um, he brings, uh, verse 16 says, he brings uh, darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains while you are hoping for light, he makes it into deep darkness, turns it into gloom. You're just holding your breath, hoping it gets better. And the longer you don't confess, the darker it gets. If you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such pride. My eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev have been locked up. There is no one to open them and Judah has been carried into exile, wholly carried into exile. Look up your eyes and lift up your eyes and see those coming from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? See, what is the saddest thing of all of losing your kingdom? Not the wealth, not the cities that are closed, not the the money or the treasure. It's the sheep. You don't get to shepherd those sheep anymore. And those are the Lord's sheep. You were selected to be the shepherd of the Lord's sheep. Pastors, by the way, have similar application in their flocks. All right. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna save some time here and not take you to Amos, but you'll see the doom and gloom there in uh, Amos 5:18 through 20. I recommend you read that. The king and the queen mother are addressed as having been removed from power and bereft of their flock. Removed from power and bereft of their flock. You know, the privilege is not being king. The privilege is shepherding the sheep. The privilege is not being a pastor. The privilege is shepherding the sheep. They're not named here by name. They are featured later in the book by name. And I think I have no reason to doubt that that's who we're talking about. We're talking about Jehoiachin and Nehushta. Jehoiachin and Nehushta. He was only king for three months. I mean, it was just a short period of time. His mother was Nehushta. These are the king and queen mother that are taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon in 2 Kings 24, verses 8 through 16. This is an interesting story here as well. Um, Jehoiachin, also called Kaniah or Jeconiah. He is the last Davidic heir seated on the throne. Uh, Zedekiah will follow him, but he's an uncle and Zedekiah is not in the line of Christ. The line of Christ ends here. The line of Christ is not through Zedekiah. The line of Christ ends with Jehoiachin. Not only does it end with Jehoiachin, but then the line of Jehoiachin has a curse placed on it. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of doctrine that goes into studying these details as well. 2 Kings 24. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta the daughter of, El, of Elnathan of Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem and the city came under siege. Now we don't know. We know, that, we know what year this is. But we don't know what year Jeremiah is preaching 
in this chapter. We don't know what year he did the underwear thing in the river. We don't know how many years in advance he was preaching. Um, and maybe the reason why the, the king and the queen mother were not named by name is because it was earlier than this three-month span. See what I'm saying? We're not entirely clear on the, the sequence on this. Anyway, Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. He carried them out uh, from there, all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, cut in pieces all the vessels of gold. This is where the Ark of the Covenant disappears, by the way. He uh, led him away into exile, all Jerusalem and the captains, all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. The peasants and the serfs were left behind. All right. So he led Jehoiachin away into exile to Babylon, also the king's mother, the king's wives, plural, and his officials and the leading men of the land. He led away to exile from Jerusalem to Babylon and the men of valor, 7,000, the craftsmen, the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought to exile to Babylon. And it's not mentioned, but also um, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, the uh, priest, prophet, He's taken away in uh, the same captivity. A few year, after a few years of captivity, Jeremiah is going to write them a letter. We'll get to that in Jeremiah 29. He writes them a letter, sends it off to them. Jeremiah 29 too, so stay tuned for this. Coming up in uh, 16 weeks. The letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken to exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. And the letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan. Anyway, we'll get into that and we'll get to chapter 29. There was a lot of discussion back and forth, plus the, the contemporaneous ministries of Ezekiel and Daniel that were happening in Babylon while Jeremiah is still serving in uh, Jerusalem. Eventually, Jehoiachin is going to be freed and provided for by the royal budget of Babylon. He will live out his days relatively free. He can't return ever to Jerusalem ever again, but he is freed from prison. He and, and his household are provided for by the royal budget of Babylon. They're given a stipend. They are fed in the palace of uh, the Babylonians. And you can read about that as well in 2 Kings 25, verses 27 through 30. In fact, the inclusion of that paragraph is, is very um, useful for people that are doing their studies on who wrote the book of Jeremiah, uh, who wrote the book of First and Second Kings. And uh, could that paragraph have been added after the rest of the book was written? Things like that. Anyway, we'll have more to say when we get to chapter 29 on uh, the king and the queen mother. Finally, leopard spots, Ethiopian skin, okay? Things that you cannot change. Can a leopard change his spots? It's another proverbial message. And it's another proverbial message that Yahweh adapts. Leopard spots and Ethiopian skin. Illustrative, proverbial and illustrative of how difficult repentance can be after a prolonged rebellion. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's an expression of tremendous difficulty, yea, even impossibility. 
You know, is, is a leopard tired of being a leopard one day and just say, that's it, I'm sick of these spots, I'm sick of, sick of being a leopard? You know, so he rips them off his skin and he paints some stripes on there, decides he's going to be a going to be a tiger instead of a, or a zebra or whatever. He just decides, I'm, I'm tired, of, tired of these spots. Or an Ethiopian changed his skin. Are you tired of being white? Are you tired of being black? Are you tired of being whatever? You know, your race, you can't control your skin. You are what you are. You're born the way you're born. All right? It's not like you chose to be whatever color. And so we have the illustration of it here. And it's, it's interesting. We go through, let me get back to, I'm running out of time. We get back here to chapter 13. Oh, there's some fun stuff here. If we really want to get into the, uh, some of this, there's some fun Hebrew in here. Dan and I were discussing this the other day, the companions in verse 21. What will you say when he appoints over you and you yourself had taught them former companions to be head over you? You ever have a boss that used to be an apprentice that you actually trained in doing that job? You trained them to do that job and now they're your boss? That's a, that's, a, that's, that's a tough thing to deal with. I've done it. All right? In any event. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, I helped a guy. I coached him. I trained him. I drilled him. He aced the sergeant exam for the sheriff's department. He became a sergeant. Then he became my sergeant. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Um, if you say in your heart, why have these things happened to me because of the magnitude of your iniquity? Your skirts have been removed. Your heels have been exposed. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, you guys are going to repent the day that leopard changes his skin. That's how soon it's going to happen, right? We say when pigs fly. We have other expressions that, that basically say it's not happening. Okay? All right. So this is your lot, um, verse 25, the portion measured to you from me, declares the Lord, because you've forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. The portion measured to you from me. Every amount of divine discipline God ever puts you through, He has portioned it. He has measured it. It seems like it's too much for us to bear, but He's promised He won't test us beyond what we're able to bear. He has measured out our discipline. And we're not all cookie cutter. Some of us are tougher nuts than that and he knows exactly what it takes i myself have stripped your skirts off over your face that your shame may be seen as for your adulteries and your lustful neighings the lewdness of your prostitution on the hills of the field i have seen your abominations woe to you O jerusalem how long will you remain unclean and there's the sad end to the chapter prolonged rebellion how hard is it how difficult is it the longer and longer and longer it takes all right thank you father for this message thank you for this chapter i pray we would learn from the the dirty underwear and the uh, leopard spots and the uh, smashed wine jugs Uh, each portion of this chapter has something memorable in it father that's an attention getter and uh, makes a point And I pray that we would not miss that point in our application, Father. Our uh, judgment as the royal family of God is far higher than Israel ever had. Our accountability is higher. Your expectations are higher. 
They, uh, they operated in shadows and typology. We operate in the reality of the church age. So, Father, I pray that we would be mindful of these messages, that we would be thankful for our discipline, that we would love you, Father, as the Father who loves us and disciplines us. And uh, you're not winging it. You're not uh, trying to do as best as seems you, as to you. But, Father, you know precisely. You measure it with precision. You are so awesome about all that you do, including the discipline you, you put us through. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for Jeremiah and his faithfulness. Might we likewise be faithful in our generation in all that you call for us to do. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.